And I'm Emily. And you're listening to A Sprinkle of Sugar, A Dash of Murder, a true crime podcast with an element of baking. Yeah. And you are cooking what this week? So this week, since it's our first week back after our little sabbatical, um, yep. we are making uh, steak and eggs because we are doing a really big one this week, Ted Bundy. And if you haven't heard of Ted Bundy, you live under a rock because everyone that knows anything about true crime knows about Ted Bundy. Yes. Um, and so steak and eggs, um, he had several things for his last meal, mm-hmm. but steak and eggs was absolutely the main takeaways, I think. Yes. Like the main dish, I guess. Yeah. Main, yeah. <laughs> so really yeah. quick. So in this time that we've been gone, Emily has moved down to Florida. It's now yeah. a Disney star. A Disney star. <laughs> yes. Um, so obviously if it sounds different, it's because we're over to Zoom. Um, but we'll make it as good as possible, you know. But um, yeah. Yes, oh my gosh, one month today. I just realized that. I've been no here way. for one month as of today. The 26th. And then updates with us is um, Jilly can now roll over. Woo! <laughs> and she makes a lot more sounds. So, and she's sitting in my lap right now. So uh, you're probably going to hear her making all her little baby noises. <laughs> oh, well, should we get started with some Ted Bundy? Okay. Yes. So. This happened, Ted Bundy, if you didn't know, happened in the 70s, his crimes. Um, And he is known as one of the, like, prime examples of a psychopath because he was, like, a very handsome, intelligent guy. Like, nobody would believe it was him because he seemed so normal. And everyone's idea of, (laughs) yep, everyone's idea of a serial killer was like a creepy person that you could like see it coming and you just couldn't with him yeah he blended in so well with the crowd like yeah like you said no one saw it coming and that's kind of how like so uh, psychopaths can hide it really really well yeah they're really good actors which he was he grew up in tacoma washington he had like a very normal childhood by all accounts he says he like attests like to his dying day he had this very perfect life very perfect childhood went to church every sunday but one of his childhood friends sandy holt described them as a very regular family but she said that ted had a hard time keeping up with other kids that he had a temper and one time he like built a tiger trap and one girl fell in one of them and oh, like slit her leg open and yes. he, yeah and like he would do things like that as a kid so she said there were like signs even though he describes it as like a perfect childhood so I don't know sometimes I wonder if people like say that but like she right. was very close with him so that almost seems a little bit like reaching though. Like, yes, he was the one that built this trap, but he's a kid and he was building a tiger trap. It's not like he said that he's building a 
a trap to catch little girls, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's not like the most clear sign. Exactly. It seems a little bit like reaching, like everyone kind of wants to try to find some explanation. Yeah. But she also said he lied a lot when he was a teenager about how he was like someone really important, but he really like wasn't and that he always claimed he was like really athletic and stuff, but he wasn't. He was the type of person who really wanted to be like number one at everything, like in sports and whatever, but like mm-hmm. wasn't. He wasn't as smart as he like told people he was or as athletic or whatever. Right. It's almost like he's making, trying to make himself fit in more than he did. Like maybe he even felt like he didn't fit in. Yeah. So he like overcompensated. He's already trying to put on that facade. Yeah. The first known um, inklings of crime with him um, happened in April 1974 in Seattle, Washington. Linda Ann Healy, who was 21 years old, went to University of Washington and she disappeared. And she was a local weather reporter on a popular station in the area. So when she went missing, people instantly knew something was up because she always went to work in the morning to report on the weather and stuff. Mm -hmm. And her alarm went off in her room and her roommate went in to check, like, why wasn't she turning it off and saw that she was not there and she didn't show up for work. And another day went by and people kind of were like, okay, well, we'll see about tomorrow. And when she didn't show up the second day, a public search started pretty quickly. And I I kind of would want like, I'm surprised that more action didn't happen earlier on that, you know? Yeah. Her, she's supposed to be at work the next morning. She's a weather reporter too. Mm -hmm. So like, that's kind of something you can't just skip or just miss work one day yeah and not say anything especially yeah it's yeah her room was very neat but they found when they pulled back the covers of her bed there was like a small pool of blood where her head was or where her head would be you know yeah um but the bed was very it was made neatly so it was as if there was no other sign in the bedroom that someone was there except the blood and it was covered up. So nobody like saw it right away because the bed was uh-huh. made and everything. So it was a, it was an attempt at a cover up clearly. And oh, then, or in, attempt. yeah, because there was no cleanup. He just literally threw the blankets on top of it. Exactly. In June, 1974, around the same area, George Ann Hawkins disappeared. She was only a half a block away from where Linda disappeared. And she was visiting the Beta House, which is like on a campus. And she was going home. And she was only like half a block away. Or I'm sorry, her and Linda disappeared two blocks from each other. And George Ann was only half a block away from home when she was abducted. Oh, gosh. That's so scary. That is always, like, the scariest and the most heartbreaking to me is, like, you were so close to getting home. Yeah. And you don't expect anyone to be around your home who's a scary person. Like, I don't Yeah, know. right. 
Um, he claims later not to know anything about George Ann Hawkins, and he avoids any kind of murder talk for a very long time after he's arrested. He says he's innocent for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, he was another reason people weren't very. He wasn't a suspect right away because, again, we like we were saying, he hid very well. He was an undergraduate in psychology, and he decided to get into politics with the Republican Party, and he was very involved in campaigns. People liked him. He knew how to talk to people, and he loved attention. Right. Um, and he, Ted started working with a man named Marlon, and he decided Marlon was, like, who he aspired to be and wanted to copy him and got the same car as him which was a Volkswagen bug. And that car had like a bar you could like hang on to in it. And for some reason, he was very interested in that. And he also decided to go to law school because Marlon was in law school. So he basically just wanted to copy this guy and was like, oh, that's the success I want. So I'm going to do the same exact thing. That's weird. Yeah. How do you think the other guy felt? Like if someone just all of a sudden started doing everything that I did, because buying the same car, and yeah, the same school, everything seems like, a the- little fishy. Yeah. I would definitely feel like someone was trying to steal my life. Yeah. And like that, his Ted Bundy's car becomes so famous. I would like never want that car ever. <laughs> <laughs> I drove that car. Well, not the no, same. But I, you're, I mean, car. it was different. It was different you know because this was like the old-fashioned volkswagen bug you know with the yeah it was like tan yours was like bright red it was fine yeah (laughs) always smelled like crayons (laughs) on a hot summer day that car smelled like crayons i don't know why maybe it was the seating but yeah i think that that's what it came down to because i literally i literally remember searching that car trying to find crayons (laughs) and we get in the car and be like sorry my car smells like crayons it does it wasn't a bad smell it was just like it was just the weirdest thing weird yeah i said i doubt his car smelled like crayons oh yeah in 1973 um he started doing school for um or took his lsats but he was not very good and he didn't pass them and so that was really hard on him boo-hoo and he was was dating a woman named diane but she broke up with him and it was always like a problem between them because he she was like more of an upper class and she just kind of stopped answering his letters and stuff and he says in later interviews he wanted revenge on diane in some level um but claims he doesn't remember anything of what happened later that summer after they broke up. He's like, I was kind of just in a blur that summer. And that is the summer when a lot more people started to disappear. Oh, so sure. Sure. You don't remember that. Okay. Right. <laughs> Whatever. So through the rest of that summer in King County, women were disappearing on a regular basis and four more disappeared in Washington and Oregon. Donna Gail Mason or Manson, um, she disappeared from Evergreen State College campus. Susan Rancourt from Central Washington State College, 
and Roberta Parks from Oregon State University and Brenda Ball, who was last seen at like a pub in Burien. So it's frightening the area, obviously, that at an alarming rate, um, college age girls are just like vanishing and they were not found for a long time. Did they all have the same look too? Yes. They were all around the same age, like 18 to 21, kind of. Similar hairstyles, brown hair, like similar type, college students. Very, you know, you're like an average person. But it, it is strange. He never really explains why they all like kind of looked similar to each other. Like why he went for that. Why it was that type. Yeah. Was his ex-girlfriend, like, did she? She did kind of look like them, but not, like, a ton. She did have, like, dark hair, though. But, yeah. Um, and a year before all of these disappearances happened, Ted actually worked with the police on psychological analysis <laughs> for people who commit violent crimes toward women, and he gave advice to the cops on how to prevent rape on women. What a sick freak. Yes. And the way he just like can talk psychologically about this and know it applies to him like this whole time. So that's how he knows all this and cloaking it with his psychology degree. It's insane. That is so messed up. I just can't even believe that people can do that. Yeah. Like total, total split life, you know? It makes no sense. So he meets a woman named Liz. And they were together for a very long time. And they sort of lived as a family. If you've seen the Ted Bundy movie with Zac Efron as it, it's kind of like from her perspective what happened with their life a little bit. Even though some of it is fabricated, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, That one kind of digs into their lifestyle a little more. Yeah, I mean... Okay, just to comment on that documentary, I saw it. Zach Efron did amazing in that because he did. Around the same time that that documentary was released, another one was released. And yeah. this, that one was more so just factual, showed actual video evidence of Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. So I was watching those around the same time and it was nuts. Like, even though face, facial expressions that Zach Efron would make, he was able to like master the same face yeah. as Ted Bundy. Yes. And those were those were released at the, like the same time and they were by the same director. Oh, so, were they? Yeah. So it was like that makes the, sense. Fiction, the like, you know, acted out one and the real one. And they're both on Netflix. So I wonder if he had heard that before. If Zach Efron had heard that he kind of looks like Ted Bundy before or if if it was I just how like that casting i just don't i want to know how they did that especially when they did his hair like his then you could really see it and i mm-hmm. was like whoa so liz had a young daughter and he actually took care of her a lot and like i said they kind of lived as a family but he always was sort of jealous of her as well like his old girlfriend cuz she was kind of upper class And he never really measured up to that in his own eyes. And he thought everyone else thought that too. So that caused a lot of problems with them. But they were together. Like through throughout these years of people disappearing. 
and Liz will come back later. So on July 14th, 1974, in Lake Sammamish State Park, Washington, there were thousands of people there that day. It, there was, it was like a kind of a big event going on that day, like a beach party, you know, like carnival sort of thing, just, you know, having fun. Um, and Denise Nasland and Janice Ott disappear. And this is the first time there are actual witnesses who see Ted. And they say someone in a cast approached them, the two girls, and asked for help loading his sailboat on his car. Well, let me just say, if a grown man is asking a young girl for help, he doesn't need your help. Don't do it. That is a very good point. No. "Mm, I'm sure there are men around that can help. Yeah. Even if, yeah, even if they're in a cast, don't do it. Get, you know, no way. I know. I like, I always hate stuff like that because you know me, I am totally the type of person that'd be like, oh yeah, I got straight like a man. I can do it. Yeah. You, I feel you like, would want I, to prove yourself. That yes. You I would want to prove, like prove myself and be like, yeah, we don't need no men. Let's do this. And so, yeah, yeah, I feel like I would fall for it. Don't do it, Casey. I know, I know. I need to, I need to know better. Yeah. Um, and another pretty bold thing on his part, not only were there hundreds, like thousands of people there, Denise went to the restroom and she was only 60 feet away from her friends when he like came up and asked her for help. And Janice was on the beach And he walked up to her and they said, and witnesses also said they saw the tan Volkswagen and they heard him say, introduce himself. Hi, I'm Ted. So first of all, he's using his real name and everything. Um, That's extremely bold. Yeah, exactly. Um, So then people start looking or people, the police start looking for Volkswagen bugs but in Washington at the time there were 42,000 people who had that car and there were thousands of Ted's so very hard yeah and I guess at that time it was kind of difficult to like try to cross match like people that own that car compared to people that are named Ted you know because you feel like I feel like that would have to dwindle down pretty significantly it did yes so by the t- when they were done switching through or looking through names and the cars, they narrowed it down to about 100 people. So that's a big reduction, but it did take time because things were uh, no computers, really. Things were a lot slower then. But on August 8th, 1974, Elizabeth Klepfer, who is Liz, his girlfriend, went to the police and she named Ted Bundy as a person of interest. Liz said she found a bag of women's underwear in her home. That was obviously not hers. A bowl of house keys, bandages. She found a knife. Oh my God, sorry. She found a knife under the seat of his car. And she had said, he told her that he followed a sorority girl one night. Like, Okay. He's basically admitting it to her. He casually, like, I want to know how he brought that up to her too. Like, 
Yeah. Yeah, I saw a sorority girl and I just kind of followed her. Like, and I mean, that's his his significant other. Yeah. It's like, and why would you say that? Okay, so I'd be like, okay, so the bag of women's underwear. Sorry, that's chilly. <laughs> Jilly, I'm trying. Can you let mommy talk? Thank you. <laughs> um. <laughs> so the bag of women's underwear, I'd be like, okay, he's cheating. That'd mm-hmm. be like my first thought. Then. Just <laughs> having <laughs> the time of her life over there. She's. I turned on Coco Melon, and she's just lost in it right now. Okay. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and then, um, one second. Let me give her a binky. So I just, <laughs> we're in trouble. She's gonna be like, she's gonna be a chatterbox, just like her mom. Kendrick yeah. is Fogging never up gonna the windshield from talking so much <laughs> in the car. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Kendrick is uh, never gonna hear silence again. Never. Now she's just making noises with the binky in her mouth. That did nothing. She will not okay. be stopped. <laughs> well, I'm just going to say what I want to say, Jill. Um, and then like the knife under his car seat, I would be thinking, okay, so that would mean that like, just like self-defense, like people keep yeah. crowbars underneath their front seat. I mean, yeah. or even a gun in their car, you know, it's not that much different. Okay. That's my two cents. Yeah. Liz also told the police that the night Brenda Ball went missing, he was at her house for a party, Liz's house, and but he left early and was late the next morning to her daughter's baptism. So she was kind of wondering, like, where were you? You were supposed to be at this party and the baptism. So he was gone that same night. So she's suspicious, obviously. So Liz's boyfriend, Ted Bundy, started with everything she said, started to add up that it's probably him. He had the right car, was the right age, the right look, and there were records, there were actual records, like his ticket for being at Lake Sammamish that day, July 14th. So paper trail, you know, everything. I mean, that's that's as obvious as it gets, you know? Yeah. But with, despite all this, it's not hard enough physical evidence to be brought in for an interview. So they were not able to do that. And crime at this point actually stopped. So the trail went cold and the task force that was assembled disbanded. Because there's no crime, there's no repeat offenses, they can't keep investigating it because without any real evidence because Liz's Claire Liz's testimony was not enough unfortunately so how long did it take for them to just disband everything do you know um i think it was like over a few weeks that they decided um i don't think it was just like one day they were like we're done but yeah they kind of just like stopped looking at it that still surprises me. If and that feels like it wasn't even that long. Like, who knows what evidence or what other witnesses might come forward? Yeah. And of course, um, once there's no heat on him anymore, he moved. Ted moves to Utah in September 1974 for law school, and almost immediately, of course, murders start happening in Utah. 
And the first one was a police chief's daughter, Melissa Smith. She was found murdered in the woods. She was beaten and strangled with a nylon stocking, which we will see often later. Um, so the thing is, like, if the police chief's daughter, you know, goes missing and is murdered, you'd think that it was something directly at him. You wouldn't think that mm-hmm. it would be just like a random act. Yeah, you'd think. Um, Nancy Wilcox disappeared in Utah as well after leaving her house and her body was never found to this day. Laura Amy's body was found in the Wasatch Mountains and she was bludgeoned and raped. So it's becoming a pattern in Utah as well, unfortunately. And But at this time, the murders in Utah and Washington are not connected because people aren't talking to each other over state lines. Right. We don't we don't have that kind of communication or we didn't have that kind of communication back then as we do now. I mean, now it would be very obvious that something was going on and now it's traveled to this other state. Yeah. But it's not like, I mean, what would they do? They, they don't, the internet, it doesn't, word doesn't spread no. that quickly unless it hits national news. Right. I don't think it was national news yet. Like it was still local and statewide news. So They didn't even know who Ted Bundy was at all. Um, November 8th, 1974, Carol um, Durange went to the mall and she was approached by a man saying he was a police officer. And he said that a man was trying to break into her car. He's like, why don't you come with me um, and look and see if there's anything missing in your car? But she had a weird feeling and he was asking her to lean in and look through the windows to see if anything was missing. And she refused to do that. She said, it felt weird. Why weren't we? No, she she didn't want to. Um, And he asked her, well, why don't you come down to the station to identify him? And she asked for some ID. And he showed it to her. He actually had an ID badge. So she thought, okay, he's a real police officer. And she got into his car. And, of course, it was the bug, but she thought maybe he was an undercover cop. Um, and when he, she got in, he pulled over by a school and put a handcuff on one of her wrists. And then he pulled out a gun and said, I'll blow your head off. And that's when she managed to open the door and run off. But he ran after her um, with a crowbar. But she fought so hard. She broke all of her fingernails. Um, and another car happened to be driving by and she managed to like run over and she just jumped in this car and was like, take me to the police station. And she got away, which, um, good for her for fighting. Like it's a hard situation. Um, sorry, Julie was crying. I had to mute myself, (laughs) but that was nuts. I mean, for her to, for one trust her gut and kind of be like, okay, I need to see some, some, um, verification. Mm-hmm. And then to go on to like, I don't know, just like fight so hard. Good for her. Yeah. 
But unfortunately, he got so angry that she got away that he drove somewhere else. And four hours later, Deborah Kent was leaving to pick up her brother. She was leaving a play and she was abducted in the parking lot as she was going to the car. And a handcuff key was found in that parking lot that fit the one that Carol had on her wrist. So they were pretty sure it was the same person. And it was only a few hours later. So it they were pretty sure it had to be connected. Um, right. And at that point, it was probably just like rage-induced. Yes. Um, student foresters on March 5th 1975 were on Taylor Mountain and they found the skull of Brenda Ball who has been missing for a while now um, in the woods and a hundred feet apart from each other were three other women's bodies which were Linda Ann Healy, Brenda Ball, Susan Rancourt and Kathleen Parks. They were all found together. There were fragments of bones scattered all over the area. And they were decapitated as well. And only four miles away from there, in the same woods, Janice Ott and Denise Nasland from Lake Sammamish were found. So at this point, obviously, they're starting not a missing persons case, but a homicide um, case, looking for all of these women. And since they're from two completely different areas, these group two groups of women but they're all in the same place, the same woods, they are now like, okay, we have a serial killer, which wasn't a term yet, so they called it multiple killer. Um, But now they're starting to believe it's connected. Imagine being those, you call them student foresters? Mm Mm-hmm. That just, like, come across a human skull. Yeah, but, like, they were just doing research on, like, plants and stuff for their class and found all of these remains so did they continue looking or do you think the police found the rest of the remains um they called the police right away when they found the skull and then um the police came and found the rest but if i saw anything i'd immediately call the police i wouldn't want to see anything else no personally right yeah um but that's crazy and then january 12th 1975 Karen Campbell disappeared from Wildwood Inn in Colorado. She was with her fiance and his children, and her body was found 36 miles away from where she disappeared, out in the woods. And unfortunately, she had been in the woods throughout the winter. So the decomp and like the elements on her body was not good. Um, it was also with forensic evidence not being perfect, it would have been even harder to try and find any information out from her, her body. I mean, at that point, they're, they're lucky they identified her. Yeah, there were uh, like, obviously animals had been at her body and everything, which is just terrible. I mean, you're uh, out there for the winter. It makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Julie Cunningham and Denise Oliverson both vanished in Colorado as well. So this is the third state, but which um, with linked murders. And Colorado linked the murders much faster than Washington and Utah did. 
they believed it like right away from the signs. But between the three states, info was still not being shared across state lines. So there was like, the, it's like limited resources of like getting information to each other, but also it could have been done and they just didn't want to for jurisdiction purposes, which we've said often, I hate and it sucks. And in August, 1975, an officer saw a bug driving with his lights off and followed him. And it was Ted Bundy. And he was arrested for not stopping when an officer asked him to stop. So Bundy immediately demanded a lawyer, which kind of looked suspicious because he was stopped really for a traffic thing. You know? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask was it wasn't for the reason of um, them thinking it was him. No, it was because he was driving with his lights off and he kept driving when the officer like asked him to pull over. That was why. So because of this, they decided to do a search because he was like, I want a lawyer. They decided to get a warrant and search the car and they found a brown bag with a ski mask in it, an ice pick and torn sheets, a pry bar, handcuffs and nylon pantyhose. And they were like, oh, that's highly suspect. So this a full investigation. Creep. <laughs> yeah. And let's not forget, one of the uh, the girls were strangled with nylon oh. stockings. So did, did they make that connection right away? Do you think the police officers? Um, I'm not sure, but they jumped into action really quickly either way. Yeah. Probably not. I mean, yeah, they would jump into action right away once they found all that because it's all suspicious. Mm -hmm. But I feel like with how the departments are and within police, you know, there's murder and then there's the the ones that do traffic violations. Yeah. I think. I don't know. I, I, I'm pretty certain. I was like, it's yeah. separate. So you wouldn't know about every single, like as a police officer, unless it's a huge thing going on, you don't know about every single crime that's going on in your area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but they immediately bring in Carol Durange because they thought this car and description fits what she described. And she identified him instantly in a lineup and they charged him right then and there with her kidnapping. So they don't have anything on the murder yet, but for Carol's kidnapping, they charged him. Um, and they're thinking this Ted is the Ted from Utah and Seattle. And the states finally agree to talk to each other and they meet in Aspen. And it, this case became the first multi-state convergence of states like working together and talking together. Like, I cannot believe that it took this long for that to start yeah. happening. In the 70s, the late 70s. I That's know. crazy. And even now it, it, it ends up being an issue, mm -hmm. just like the jurisdiction and everything and who works on what case. And, and then they like also want a lot, like if there's like a big case out there, they're kind of almost competing with each other for yeah. who gets to solve this case. So they don't even want to share information amongst each other. Mm -hmm. is what you hear a lot yeah you hear still you hear that all the time um Bundy's church friends they all like rallied in his defense and this is like when a lot of people came out and did not believe that it was him 
and they were like, he's totally normal. Look at him. He looks normal. He's been going to church. Like, there's no way. There's no way. Um, and Bundy was very involved in his own defense, which is one of the things he's really known for. Um, and it gave him a lot of confidence that all these people were showing up to the jail and like protesting his arrest and stuff like that. He's very arrogant. Um, and Bundy's, uh, lawyers were always trying to confuse Carol because she was the witness at this trial and they would try to trip her up on the stand and try and get her to say something that would like decredit herself as an unreliable witness. And at one point he actually stood up and pointed at her and said, she's lying. She lied then. And she lied now. But I think she handled it pretty well, given all the like pressure on, on her. And she remained like, it's him. And I know it. And you can't make me think I'm crazy or delusional. It's him. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, as a lawyer, there's not really a lot. I, I feel like the evidence is kind of stacked against him. Mm-hmm. You know? So I guess that's like to start decrediting all the witnesses is kind of the first step to go to, I guess. But still, yeah. it's just so, I don't know, like morally wrong. Yeah. I could, I could never be a lawyer or defense lawyer. Uh-uh. No way. I would really hate it. Okay, so Ted was given... 90 days evaluation after being found guilty um, for her abduction. And his mother is, she denies any wrong. She cannot believe that this is him. Um, Which, I mean, a mother wouldn't want to. And if you don't see it, you don't, like, I don't, I couldn't imagine that position, you know? Right. You think you know your child at least well enough to know whether or not they'd kill somebody. Yeah. And especially somebody like Ted Bundy, who was, had a pretty normal upbringing mm-hmm. and was a, a really well acclimated person. You yeah. Wouldn't, you wouldn't even think twice. You'd be like, no, there's no way. Exactly. I just like, no, no one would want to believe that about their kid. I, I don't blame her for not being able to know or anything. I don't know, you know? Right. There would have to be some level of denial, I guess, because once the evidence starts coming in, you know, and and plus there are other people that are rallying around him too. It's not like she's the only one that believes him. Yeah. Um, but also a few of his old girlfriends came forward and one of them had a story, a story, Oh my god, I can see. Sorry. <laughs> it almost sounds like sorority and story mixed together. <laughs> yep. Um, well, she said that one day they were swimming and he kept like pushing her head underwater and letting her up to breathe for like a second and then pushing her back down. And there were like instance little instances like that where he kind of showed like a darker side of him. Or, like, weird side, because that's definitely weird. Um, and that when he was 14. So creepy. Like, I wonder, yeah. like, after the first, I don't know. I'd like to think that after the first incident that that happened, I'd be like, okay, bye, you're weird. Yeah. Um, instantly break up if someone yeah. shoved my head underwater repeatedly. Right. That's so Red scary. Flag. Yeah. 
Um, when he was 14, uh, he found a birth certificate that said his father was listed as unknown, and he hadn't previously known that, I guess. Um, and Ted's mother had him at a home for unwed mothers, and she left him there. But her father insisted she go back and take the kid like you can't leave him. So she did. And apparently the psychologist who evaluated said that left psychological, like finding that out, left psychological damage of like being rejected and like a state of like you can't stand to be objected or rejected <laughs> because of that. Um and Ted's grandfather apparently had a violent side and that he was, Ted Bundy was likely abused, but he never says this. He always says his childhood was perfect. It was wonderful. We had a perfect family. So they're kind of assuming that because he's never said anything about that ever. Weird. Like, yeah. and then the fact that like, they would just assume that too, if he's openly saying, no, that never happened. Yeah. Like, where did these allegations initially come from? And like, I don't know. Once again, once again, I feel like it might be people just trying to reach for, like trying to find some reason. Yeah. That he acted like that. And uh, also, do you know what his mom looked like? Like, did she look like the girls at all? She kind of did. She had brown hair, but what it if, wasn't, like, they weren't similar though. But. Okay. So I was going to say, what if he's, like, going for, like, girls that look like how his mom did at the time of, like, him leaving her, him, or her leaving him? Yeah, she kind of did, but not, like, a ton. Okay. Um, so I don't know. It could be, but who knows? Sorry, I was just thinking more <laughs> about it. Yeah, that would definitely mess someone up, <laughs> if, like, knowing that you were left and the, oh, like... Knowing you were left is one thing, but then knowing that the only reason why you stayed in that family or didn't that they even got you back was because um, she was basically like forced to go back and get him. Mm-hmm. And she still didn't want to. Yeah. That would be really rough. That would be really rough. It definitely a blow. Um, the psychologist thought he was in denial about his childhood, that it was not as perfect as he thought it was and the psychologist tells the judge it was not a good idea to release him on probation because he believed he would be violent again if he was released so he's denied probation and he's then served a warrant for carol campbell's murder after the police find a brochure for the inn that she was staying at um in his stuff like in his home i think or in his car Mm -hmm. And that he had checked in there the day she went missing. So. All right. All right. Red flag. Some traction. Yep. He was charged with murder and premeditation of murder for her death. And he was extradited to Colorado. And even through all of this, he remained very smug, very arrogant, insisting he was innocent. He always smiled and laughed on camera. It's one of the like creepiest things about him. Yes. Um, This is no big deal. Like, does not care. Yeah. Right. And on June 7th, 1977, Ted was in the law library of a courthouse in Aspen when he jumped out of the second floor window and vanished. He got away. 
because he had no handcuffs on, no chains, no guards, except for one outside the door. There was nobody with him. They kind of gave him free reign of the courthouse and was like, he wanted to like be his own lawyer. So they were letting him in the law library to study. Yeah, that's what I was going to say was, wasn't at that point he was like kind of acting as his own lawyer. Yeah. And it's just ridiculous. There was like no security at all. He was basically not being treated like a prisoner. And he managed to escape, obviously, if he's not being watched or anything. This guy, like, he's not, like, a big dude. Like, he's not going to be able to fight past someone. You know, you wouldn't think much of it. You'd be like, okay, Ted's in the library. Not a big deal. Like, he's a nice enough guy. He'll come out if he does anything. (laughs) I don't know. Like, yes, that was stupid of them. Mm -hmm. But also, if you're, like dealing with this guy every day and at at this point they probably you know the people that are in charge of watching him don't know the full extent of the investigation Mm -hmm. they're just like okay so he's a possible murder suspect and then um uh convicted kidnapping someone yeah so i mean i don't know like i i wouldn't think that like i would have to keep a close eye on someone like that right yeah and But the police got in trouble instantly, obviously. Um, There were roadblocks. There were only two roads out of Aspen at the time. And there were roadblocks set up. And all cars were searched of anyone who was trying to get in or out of the city. Um, Two days he's missing. 150 people started a search with dogs in the surrounding woods. Um, On the third day that he was missing, the FBI was called in. And they joined in the search. And on the sixth day, Bundy walked back into Aspen because he was cold and starving and disoriented from the elements because it was like huge, huge storm. Um, And he had broken into a cabin and was staying there, but it had like no resources or provisions. So he was starving and just decided to go back to town. And he got into a car And was going to drive away. So a stolen car, obviously. But an officer stopped him. And thought it was suspicious. Because he was driving really slow and stuff like that. Or. No, sorry. He was spotted, like, breaking into the car. So the officer stopped him. And he's arrested again. And even now, he was, like, smiling. Saying hi to reporters. Like, he knew all of the reporters by name. So obviously he was watching and reading everything about his case because he's obsessed with himself and likes the attention and literally would address the reporters like, oh, hi, I know you. Like, that's not normal at all. No, that is so messed up and just so cocky too. Yeah. He's just, oh God, I just want to like punch him in the face if he was still living. Um <laughs> Spoiler. (laughs) So December 30th, 1977, a guard came to give Bundy food and finds him missing again. He had starved himself down to 140 pounds and he managed to escape through the ceiling of his cell and crawl into an apartment of a jailer that was above the cell, put on the jailer's clothes and escaped out the front door great security it's a great system they got there like don't you think 
you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Yeah, literally. I just, I talk about incompetence. I just, oh my God. And unfortunately, um, he's gone for quite some time this time. And on the fifth day of him being missing again, the FBI is called in again. And they start like a full profile on him once again to find him. On January 14th, 1978, which is 16 days after he goes missing the second time, Ted murders two girls after managing to break into a Chi Omega sorority house in Tallahassee, Florida. So he has traveled across the country to somehow in 16 days. We'll find out how later. But um, this, okay, for one, you're going to go into the details of this, I'm sure. Yeah. But that murder is so gruesome. Mm -hmm. And two, I don't understand why he did it. Yeah. Like, dude, you just got to lay low for a while. Like you're on the lamb, dude. Like I and he he goes all out. I mean, yeah. I don't. I just don't. I don't understand how why why he. I guess it's just like this need that he feels like he has. Yeah. It it truly was very brutal. Um, he came in carrying an oak tree limb into um the sorority house and like that was his weapon it was like pretty thick and obviously could do some damage um he first broke into margaret bowman's room and he beat her with the tree limb strangled her and also raped her and then after that he moved on to lisa levy's room down the hall and killed her in her sleep so she never woke up Like, he walked in, like, hit her, and she died instantly. Like, he hit her that hard. Um, The other girl didn't die instantly, they said? No. Because it's weird, because the first girl, Margaret Bowman, she was strangled and raped, and the other ones were not. So it was like, I I don't know what goes on in his brain, obviously. You know, you'd think that something was, um, that there'd be, like, noises. I mean. Yeah. Especially if she didn't die right away. Yeah. There's just a house full of girls. He managed to, like, subdue her enough somehow, I suppose. Because, like, they were, um, apart from Margaret Bowman, all of the other girls, so Lisa Levy, and then the next girls, were Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner. He went into their room and attacked them. And they did not see him either. They were both sleeping. And it was the same situation where he just went in. Like, nobody had a chance to cry out or anything because he didn't wake those three girls up. He just hit them and left. And um, Karen and Kathy both survived. So when they woke up, eventually, they were they didn't even know until you like wake up and feel pain and blood that they had been like beaten because they like he hit them hard enough where like they didn't regain consciousness. They like stayed unconscious. 
Right, like he knocked them out. Yeah. So I I mean, what's worse, you know, like having to be awake and feel that or like waking up and like realizing you've been attacked and your friends are dead. Two of your friends are dead. Like that is both of them are terrible, but like it's so surreal. Like you were literally attacked in your sleep and don't you have no idea who attacked you. It would just be so confusing to like wake yeah. up and be like, wait, why does my head hurt? Why am I covered in blood? You know, mm-hmm. whatever's happening. Yeah. It would be really, really confusing. I initially would be like, where is he? Like, what happened? I mm-hmm. must have just gotten attacked. Yeah. I wouldn't think that I've been knocked out for hours. Exactly. Uh, all of them were severely beaten with the, like, the oak tree branch. And he probably thought the two that survived were dead because um, they did not move or wake up. And he just left them there. And the police get a call from a housing complex just a few hours later saying, it sounds like someone is being beat up next door to me. So the police go to that housing complex, which isn't very far away. It was six blocks from Chai Omega. And they find a woman named Cheryl Thomas brutalized and beaten in her room. And there was blood everywhere. And she was laying in a pool of her own blood. Um, She lived as well. But he also probably thought he had killed her from, like, just, like, hitting her. Yeah, right. Right away. Um, So this was all in the same night and within, like, an hour or so of each other. So it was obviously – not obviously, but to me it seems like this was, like, out of pure anger. He's been in prison for a few days, just feels like all of – it's, like, to me it seems like it was like building up while he was in prison and he was like okay now I'm free I'm gonna let it out and like didn't even like I mean good good thing that he didn't check to see if they were dead or anything but like he was like okay I'm gonna like beat you and leave for most of them except Margaret Bowman so it's strange I feel like his plan was you know I just I just yeah like you said gotta get it out and maybe what he was thinking was one night I'm just going to let it all loose and then I'm going to go back into hiding right away. Yeah. And maybe he had plans to like then run like back like up north. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Go somewhere else then. It was very weird. And when the bodies of the two murdered girls were examined, they found teeth marks and realized he had bitten um one of the girls like pretty hard it was a large imprint of two bite marks so he had bit he bit her and it was on her um butt and he bit her and clearly bit her a second time and with a lot of force and there is a lot of speculation like was he trying to like be a cannibal or like what was up with the biting we don't really know though and so weird because it's like not even in his character yeah, it was Doing different. That. It was definitely <laughs> it was like profile. It's like he's just so aggressive. He just like maybe he is thinking like reverting back to like animal like state. Like sometimes I feel like people kind of think, oh, that's that's you know, almost like the other guy. Like yeah, there's me who's normal in public, who's fine, and then there's someone else, and he's 
he's crazy. He'll do anything. And mm-hmm. so, like, when he lets that out, then all of a sudden it, like, becomes animal-like. And especially with, like, with a tree branch. Like, yeah. No, I mean, besides with your fists, I guess. But, but like, that's more of a animal-like attack, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, February 9th, 1978, 40 days missing now. In Lake City, Florida, 12-year-old Kim Leach goes missing on her way to school. And more than 75 people start searching for her, like, immediately. And five days after she goes missing in Pensacola, Florida, an officer stops a car that looks suspicious because it was driving really slow. And the car was clearly stolen, and the man driving it, who was Ted Bundy, had a lot of credit cards of college girls in it. There were 21 credit cards from different girls. And he fought the officer trying to get away. Like, he didn't even try to, like, smooth talk this time. He just was, like, trying to fight. But he was arrested, and he gives the name of Kenneth Meisner. And he even had ID to prove it that said Kenneth Meisner on it. Um, and when news broke that a Kenneth Meisner had been arrested in Florida, the real Ken Meisner said, um, hello, I'm here. That is not me. We're different people. What's going on? Like, oh, my God, that would be so freaky if someone like well, how would, my identity. How does he know there's not someone with the same exact name as him out there, though? That's true. But um, I don't know. But um, so they, the police were like, okay, that is obviously not your name. So who are you? What is your name? They do not know it's Ted Bundy. Because, again, the information had not really reached Florida. It's very far away. They hadn't really heard about the cases. Um, and Ted refused to say his real name. So even though he had a state-appointed lawyer at this time, who was requesting bail for him, the judge said, well, we can't give bail to someone who won't say their name because who are we going to give the bail to? So he was refused bail because he wouldn't talk. Um, And so they started looking at the stolen car and they find, they don't really find anything in it, but they realize and are able to track it back that the car was stolen from the Chi Omega house. And everyone knew about that one because it wasn't super far away. So they start asking about the Florida state murders and they realize he's being very, very careful and tiptoeing around anything that he says. And they think that's suspicious behavior, clearly. Mm -hmm. And finally, he agrees to say his name, his real name, if he gets a phone call with Liz, his girlfriend. And he tells Liz on their phone call, he wished they could talk when no one was listening and that he could explain why he is the way he is. And she says, are you telling me that you're sick? And then he starts getting really defensive and tells her to back off. So (laughs) I don't know what he's trying to say here. But then he calls her again and says, yeah, I am sick. And I'm consumed by something I don't understand. And I can't contain anymore. And I can't maintain a normal life anymore. So... Uh, and then he backtracks later and says he's completely, totally innocent. So I, he's just saying whatever the hell he thinks is going to help him at the time, I think, really. Right. Well, I almost, uh, I almost believe 
you know, that he says that he feels like he's sick and it's consuming him. Yeah. That's almost like what it seems like. Yeah. So he finally talks about how he, what he was doing and all these missing days. And during his time missing, he got on a bus from to Denver, then a flight to Chicago, then a flight to Ann Arbor, Michigan to see the Rose Bowl with his alma mater, Washington State against Michigan. <laughs> a football game. And he gets drunk watching the game at a bar and is almost beat up by Michigan fans who don't like his attitude. I really wish they beat him up, honestly. Yeah, right. Um, he sleeps in a church that night, steals a car, and makes it to Atlanta, and then takes a bus to Tallahassee. So that was his little journey of how he ended up in Florida after wow. escaping the second time. Yeah. He That's is a prime... Oh, sorry. Oh, I don't know. He just seems like he went all over the place a little bit there. Literally. And the, the fact that he stopped, he was like, oh, you know what? I have time to go see my alma mater at the Rose Bowl. Let me just pull over here. Like, are you kidding me? Right. He is a prime suspect of the Kyle Omega murders and for the murder of Kim Leach. Um, they is found the out. Girl? Yeah, it was a 12 year old. So at this Did point, it? they found her body. Okay. So, you know, the, the thing is, when you think of Ted Bundy, I don't know. Okay, I don't know. I'm going to sound insensitive when I'm saying this because obviously he's a murderer. He kills so many people. Mm -hmm. But like for him to then go after children is just so messed up. And people were obsessed with him and people like women Mm -hmm. like that was so hot and so attractive. Yeah. I'm like, okay, they're not, he's not only killing people that are your age. He's killing people that are, you know, children. He's killing children. Mm-hmm. Like a child. How can, you, how can you be obsessed with someone like that? I, I, I cannot fathom that. I don't understand like that. It's so it's sickening. Disgusting. Yeah. Um. Unfortunately, they found Kim's body in a shack in the woods, and they realized he was connected because he was in Lake City Inn, uh, which was only two miles away from where she was and hundreds of people came to her funeral and were really supportive of the, her family, um, her poor family. Uh, in April, 1978, he is told we have evidence to convict you for both crimes. And he tells the officer, when you find the person who did this, they are going to be wanted for murders in the three digits in six States. So it's like a sort of confession. Like, how would you know that? But he says, when you find the person who did this. And he's saying it's a number in the three digits. Not like, that's a big number. So I don't know. He he always like, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. But then like says things like that. Like, how would you know that? You know? He was brought into a room one day while he was in prison to get a dental exam. And when he realizes this, he freaks out. He starts screaming and saying, you can't do this without my attorney. And um, one of the detectives uh, whose name is Ken said, oh, yes, we can. Hello. And he immediately changes demeanor, which is another really scary thing about him. And he just sat calmly into the dental chair and smiled and was like, you know, I'm not a violent person. 
you'll find this out. Do what you have to do. And like smiles and like opens wide for the dental exam. Mm. Like that is creepy. Yeah. Such a creep. The detective said he like changed in like a second from screaming to like smiling. And I don't know if he thought that would help him, but that just makes you look more like a psycho. And July 7th in 1978, he is indicted for murder and his trial is broadcasted on TV and he kind of loved it. And the court decides to proceed with trying to charge him for 36 murders. So obviously that is a bigger number than was originally like the public originally knew about. Um. Because at this point, they just know about the little girl and then the sorority girls, right? Or are they're matching it with all the other ones at this they're point? They're linking right? it across the states now. Yeah. Okay. So and then they kind of knew about the Colorado one with the at the end. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to think of like what the public would have known about. They knew about the four girls in Washington. Um, okay. For Kim, Levy. I mean, Kim Leach, um, the girls in Florida, Mm -hmm. and I think that would be about it. So 36 would definitely be shocking when you're thinking, it's still a large number when you're talking about like human life, but like Mm -hmm. then to jump to 36, that's like astronomical. Um, Michael Minerva was appointed to defend Bundy. And he always said, like, I didn't have a choice. I was literally forced into doing this because um, Bundy didn't have any money. So he was state appointed. And he basically, his strategy was to have Bundy just sit quietly and look, try and look innocent. And Minerva's goal was to spare, to save his life, to spare him the death penalty. But basically thought there was no way we could push of, like, he's innocent. But Ted Bundy obviously did not like this and he wanted to do it himself. Um, He was offered a plea to say, I'm guilty to go to prison for life. So his lawyer, Michael Minerva managed to get that for him. And Ted Bundy said, okay. And like agreed to it. But the day that it was supposed to happen in court, he decided to stand up and make a speech about how disappointed he was in his counsel. He didn't want to take the plea. And that Michael Minerva was ineffective. And he's like, my lawyer thinks I'm guilty. And I don't like that. Basically sabotaging himself. Um, But he thinks he's doing himself good because he's stupid. And the lawyer, Michael Minerva, knew he could not stand up and say Bundy was not guilty. Now that uh, Bundy had just told everyone in the court that he thought he was guilty. Yeah. Yeah. He would have just, he, he literally just, he's so stupid. Yeah. That is so dumb. I mean, that's literally self-destructive right there, but. And yeah, you can't just discount your lawyer because he's the one that's speaking for you. Yeah. I get it. Like you don't feel like you like your lawyer, but no one's going to represent you. No. Yeah. Um, So Minerva tried to withdraw from the case after that, but was not allowed to because it had already started and the judge said no. 
no so, way yeah he was like is. I can't do this I don't want to do yeah. this but. if he's like trying to I mean that kind of sucks for both parties because like ah. if the lawyer doesn't want to do it and the the um what, what is he the convict I don't know if defendant. He doesn't, the defendant doesn't want to do it yeah then that doesn't make any sense then like they should let them like go their separate ways because i feel like that's kind of affecting their right to a fair trial you know yeah Yeah. your lawyer doesn't think that you're uh innocent right and bundy was somehow allowed to be his own co-counsel even though he wasn't a lawyer so that isn't a good practice i don't know but Michael Minerva was like, all right, you know what? If you want to be my co-counsel, I'm going to let you sink your own ship, basically. So, I mean, this it was such a weird trial. It's the weirdest thing ever. I think that that's probably the best way that he can do his job without intentionally doing a bad job. Like, he's like, you're basically going to sing that you're guilty to everyone yourself and it won't yeah. be my fault as your lawyer right so i think I'd, I'd be like you know what go ahead yeah See if they believe you mr crazy pants literally and the trial is moved to miami because people thought the jury in tallahassee would be too biased so margaret good joins the defense team because michael minerva said i'm still going to be the head counsel on this case but i am not going to go to miami i'm not going to sit through it and margaret thought um, Ted Bundy was incompetent to be in charge of his own defense team, but the judge ruled it fit. And she did not like this, obviously, as a real lawyer. She said Ted Bundy was very impulsive. He had mood swings that they couldn't keep up with and they couldn't control his outbursts in court. Um, and anytime he wanted to talk in court, he wanted to talk about anything but the case. He talked about eating the same sandwiches in prison every day, that the lighting in prison was bad. And it, it was just like ridiculous. He was trying to get people to sympathize for him. Like, oh my God, the stress on me because like, of my conditions. This is not, this is not a prisoner satisfaction survey. This yeah. is, <laughs> this is a trial, innocent or guilty. Let's focus on the trial at hand. Yeah. It is ridiculous. This, yeah, this is, we're not trying to feel bad for you. Even if you, even if you didn't commit the crime, this is not the place to be complaining about prison or jail at that point. (laughs) Ugh. And then he had the bright idea to cross examine the Chi Omega House officer himself. So that officer was brought to the witness stand, and Bundy was like, please, officer, explain to me in great detail what you saw and margaret good was so mad because okay i just gotta say why you are literally like digging your own grave at this point because now okay if you're found guilty if you're having the officer explain in detail what you did there everyone's gonna be like okay go for the death penalty exactly he's literally burying his own grave And Margaret um, Good, his defense lawyer, basically, she said he was asking the officer to lay out all his crimes in great detail for no reason. 
like he just wanted to hear it. You know, it was just it was just a terrible decision on his part. But um, the officer was like, "Okay, bet," and described all the details. He was probably trying to like trip him up and just did a horrible job of it. Yeah. So the officer said there was a puncture wound in one of the girl's nipples. And obviously about he talked about the bite mark and said that he found her lying face down and there was blood around her head and a nylon stocking around her neck. And her head was very bloated from the strangulation and her eyes were glassy. And Bundy just like, the de- the officer went into great detail describing it and Bundy just kept repeatedly asking for details to be repeated. Like, how were her arms positioned? How was she, what was she in this position? Blah, blah, blah. And the judge was like, uh, what's it called? Like, objection for repetition. Like, he already, the officer already explained this. Why do you want to hear it again? So you're you're not doing yourself good here. All right, Jesse. The only tactic that he can come like that, I feel like he might be going at is to trip him up. But it, otherwise, but even if you just like, what are you saying that he wasn't there? Like, what's the whole point of even trying to trip up the officer? There's nothing. I don't, I just no. don't get it. Well, nobody, nobody believes he was doing this for legal purposes. Everybody believed he wanted to hear it because he's, he wanted to hear the details of his own crime. Like he wanted to hear it spoken to him and like, oh my God, how did you see it? And like, and that just like puts the nail in the coffin for him pretty much that everyone can tell this is him like just enjoying hearing about it and not like trying to defend himself. So why would you do that? Sorry, Uh, Julie had to put in her two cents. (laughs) And Margaret Good said, any decision he made that would help himself or the state, he chose the state. Like everything he did helped the state's defense, not himself. Even when he thought he was helping himself, it was like the opposite. Well, no wonder. What is it? The LSATs or whatever for being Mm -hmm. a lawyer? Yeah. No wonder he's, (laughs) he failed. Yeah. Um, and then during this whole time, this woman, Carol Boone, who was a friend from Washington, she was always at the trial. She always thought he was innocent and she was like his little advocate. And she's like, oh my God, like there's nothing wrong with him. She was like in love with him. She's a weirdo. Um, because obviously he's guilty lady, but okay. Um, so Dr. Saron, I think is how you say his name, brought a cast of Bundy's teeth and they compared it to the bite marks showing that they matched. And this was also like a huge deal. Like everyone was like, okay, with the teeth matching and everything, they were pretty sure it was a done deal that he was going to be found guilty. Um, and after that happened, Bundy used wet toilet paper to lock the door of his cell so that they couldn't get in and take him to court um, because he wanted time to prepare like a speech after that. And I was like, okay. How, wait, how do you lock your door with wet toilet paper? He like jammed the lock with wet toilet paper. They, so they couldn't, <laughs> I don't know. They couldn't open it for some reason. That's the most childish thing. So first I you're know. out and now you won't let people in. <laughs> yeah. And he was given contempt of court. 
And when he showed up later, the judge, I love this judge, by the way. If you w- watch like the documentary, watch the clips of the judge. It's incredible. He was like, you know what? We're not on your schedule. We're going to continue with or without you. If you don't show up, we're going to continue. And Bundy gets like defensive and again, starts saying, you know what? The conditions of my jail cell, they just give me so much stress. They give me so much stress. And like the judge was like, we're not here to talk about that. And this is when one of the most famous moments of his trial, he's Bundy's like shaking his finger at the judge and the judge starts saying, don't you shake your finger at me, young man. Don't you shake your finger at me. (laughs) And everyone kind of remembers that moment kind of. Um, And basically the judge was like, I don't give two craps about your conditions. We're here to talk about and tell you we're going to proceed with or without you. So you can show up. I don't care. The fact that like he has the authority to then go at him and just point his finger and like not mm-hmm. in his face, but point his finger at him. Someone that believes that they have that much authority typically does not. <laughs> yeah. Like you're ridiculous. He clearly, it just shows how warped his brain is. Like he still thinks he's totally going to get off at this point. He doesn't believe he's in any danger of being found guilty at all. Um, but after six and a half hours of deliberation, the jury finds him guilty of all charges He has seven charges, three of attempted murder, and four counts of capital murder. And you can clearly see he's very surprised by this outcome. And even his defense lawyers were like, you could tell by the surprise on his face that he was totally not thinking rationally about the way this trial was going (laughs) at all. Um, Just imagine me. I know. Like, (gasps) what? How could you not know you were doing a terrible job? Like, everyone else knew it. Oh, my gosh. Honestly, if he would have done it in today's age, he probably wouldn't have gotten out of Washington. Yeah. I mean, you'd hope, you know. Yeah. But there is, like, so much more to track him now that maybe he wouldn't have. Yeah. I mean, I don't think – I think at least with the first murder that popped up in – Utah. Mm-hmm. Because it's not like Liz didn't keep tabs on him. I bet she knew, like, when he moved from Washington to Utah. Yeah. Whatever. Um, so he was given the death penalty. And at his um, sentencing, the judge said these killings were extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile, which is the title of the Zac Efron movie on Netflix that's where that quote comes from it's from the judge and um so he's charged with the death penalty but a few months later Bundy is in trial again for the murder of Kim Leach the 12 year old so a lot of people kind of forget this or don't know this but he after he's convicted of and sentenced to death he goes on trial again for her murder because this was a separate trial at that point, is it just to get justice for her? It pretty much is. That's what her defense team said. And they also said they wanted to go for a second death penalty to make sure he gets executed. Because there's always a chance like he doesn't with one death penalty as well. So that's okay. what they were going for with her trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and during this, there was tons of evidence now that came to light later 
with Kim's murder. Um, witnesses saw him put her in a car. There was her blood was in the car. Um, there were shoe tracks. Fibers from his clothes were found on her body. So this was a few years later. A few years. I don't know, but they were able to like process it because it it took slower to process. But by that time, they had figured all that stuff out. And mm-hmm. once again, he decided to defend himself. And in this trial, one of the most famous things was to get some sympathy for himself. I don't know. He was cross-examining his girlfriend, Carol Boone, and proposed to her during his self-cross-examination like cross-examination. And he was like, do you want to marry me? She's like, yes, oh my God. And like, it it was the weirdest thing ever. And they like impromptu got married in the middle of this trial for this 12-year-old girl's murder. Like how, I don't know if you're trying to look sympathetic. Like, oh my God, I just got married. You can't sentence me to death on my wedding day. Like, but you just look even more insensitive. This is about a 12-year-old girl. Carol Boone is messed up. Yeah, exactly. You look insensitive. Even if you don't feel like you did or even if you didn't do it, um, that is the most insensitive thing to the family, to everyone going through that. It just shows how delusional you are and makes you almost incompetent. Yeah. Like you just do not care. Carol Boone, there is something, there's got to be something so wrong with her. Well, Uh, that. That blows my mind, too. I mean, I kind of already talked about it, but just the women that were drooling over him. And even today, like, I'll see TikToks of girls, like, drooling over how attractive Ted Bundy was or um, the Night Stalker. People love the Night Stalker. Yeah, and he's like, gross. Yeah, and he is gross. I always, I look at him and I literally think of bad breath. Yes. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway I just, like... I even today I don't think that people really realize how gruesome what they did and how messed up what they really are Mm -hmm. but Carol Boone was in it she was literally watching the trials and she still she was desperate at that point truly honestly Uh so he is sentenced to death again for Kim Leach's murder and then that it it's in the movies and stuff. This part is always put with like his original trial, but um, that like infamous moment when someone like grabbed him and he like turned around and like you could see like anger in his face and makes that angry stare. That happened after he was convicted for this murder. Okay. So you can probably like look that picture up if you were interested or whatever. Like the that famous trial moment, but that happened in this trial. Um, and then he was on death row for 10, 11 years, and he was apparently high and drunk all the time in prison. So Carol would bring him drugs vaginally all the time. And somehow they even had sex in jail and she got pregnant and they had a daughter together named Rosa Imagine being Ted Bundy's daughter. Like, can't. I don't know. I don't know what her life is like, but she has some crazy parents. I am. I'm. Yeah. I wonder. I. I'm very curious. I want her to like. I don't know. I don't. I wonder what she thinks of him because obviously, I feel like she would be raised to be like, oh my god, 
with her mother, like, you're an amazing person. Like, I don't know. I don't know what she thinks, but I'd have to look into that. But I feel like she would have been raised with that ideal from her parents, you know? But then to, like, be within the real world where nobody agrees with her. Yeah. Gotta have some kind of, uh, that is so weird. I, I, like, I can't even wrap my mind around that. Like, because he was probably already dead by the time that she was able to, like, she probably doesn't even remember him. Uh, she was like a toddler. Yeah. Or, I don't, I don't know, because he was on death row for 11 years. So she was like, uh, not a teenager yet, but yeah. Yeah, I want her to be like interviewed. Or maybe yeah, she same. has been. Probably maybe she not. Has been. I just like haven't seen it. Or she just wants to stay out of the public eye completely, which I totally understand too. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, you don't really want to advertise that. Yeah. Um. So Hugh Ainsworth and Stephen Mashad are two journalists who, the second thing we talked about in the beginning, the Ted Bundy tapes, which is the documentary on Netflix. They have hundreds of hours of just Ted talking about the murders. And it's like, if you are really interested in the psychological breakdown of Ted Bundy, watch that. Because I didn't have time to put in all the clips and stuff. But he got, he taught, it like shows actual clips and you can hear it of him talking. Um, Stephen Mashad had the idea to get him to talk in third person, quote unquote, of like, what would a person like this who did these murders, which is obviously him, but he wouldn't admit it. So they were like, what would this person be thinking? What would they do? And he, Ted Bundy just opens up. He talks about everything psychologically of what he was thinking and what he was like his mental process through all this. And it's, I'm fascinated in that sort of stuff. So if you are, I would definitely listen to those tapes because obviously he's, he's like this individual would want to do blah, blah, blah. So he's not really confessing, but he's totally talking about himself. You know, I wonder why he never, cause he never confessed, right? He does later, but okay. not for a very long time, but not of everything. Didn't he never confess as a 12 year old? I'm not sure what he confessed and what he didn't I could be wrong but I just remember thinking like that he didn't confess to that one because he didn't want to admit that he did that I I I can see that since he was she was as far as we know the only like child Mm -hmm. of his victims so possibly um so as the years go by um 10 Ted Bundy's case was heavily studied um, and as new tech strategies and new strategies of investigating were happening and the term serial killer was invented, they would keep going back to his case and um, officers and like FBI agents would actually go in and talk to him and ask for profiles, like his opinion on other killers. He assisted on the Green River Killer Um, by giving the police a profile on him because he did have a psychology degree after all. Um, And also obviously the biggest one is he was a serial killer himself. So I just think that's really interesting. He literally talked to the FBI on like 
how to catch the Green River Killer and stuff like that, like from a serial killer's perspective. This is crazy. You know, way to use your resources. I you mean, know? right? Literally. It's like Silence of the Lambs where she went, Starling went to talk to Hannibal Lecter about Buffalo Bill, you know, same thing. Right. Oh, yeah, you're right. I mean, you hate to give him the satisfaction of like, you know, like we need information from you, but then That's at the true. same time, it's like you got to let your own ego go if you're going to catch someone else. Like, if this could potentially save lives, who cares what this Ted Bundy thinks, whether, yeah, whether he's thinking positively or negatively, you know, yeah. as long as it helps in the end. So, one week before his execution, he was evaluated for mental um, competency to try and avoid getting killed. Like one last, like I'm insane, so you can't kill me or whatever. He is diagnosed with manic depression and he says he hears voices in his head that told him to commit violence against women. And he also admitted to not being able to feel empathy or love. And I mean, I do believe that. I don't think (laughs) at all. Um, But he ended up getting a stay of execution for three years because of this diagnosis. Whoa. Yeah. But in 1989, the Supreme Court finally denied him any more stays of execution because there was a public outcry. Like, why is he still alive? It's been a long (laughs) time. Yeah. So three days before his execution, he finally kind of realizes, yeah, I'm going to die. And this is when he decides to confess to everything. Three days before. Wow. He also thought the confession would stop his execution like if i have more information to give you won't kill me kind of oh. thing um so it really like wasn't like i want to relieve myself of my sins before i die I, it was like yeah. a selfish reason um yeah. he confesses to murders in california washington oregon idaho utah colorado and florida and he says roughly 10 of the 30 that he 30 girls that he admits to killing were buried, only 10 of them. And he left the others like just out around the woods or something. And he said he also confessed to severing the heads of at least a dozen of those girls. And he also at this time admits to necrophilia. Disgusting. Um, So and that was like some. I'm sorry, I missed that. Someone was calling me. You said necrophilia. Yeah, it is at this point when he admits to necrophilia, because he had never um, previously said that. Sex with a dead body. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. Uh Um. Yeah. Disgusting. Um. On the day of his execution, people, thousands of people came, and they were chanting like "Burn Bundy, burn." fireworks were set off outside the jail like it was like a full celebration of this person dying t-shirts were sold and like people said it was kind of like a a weird carnival people were just so excited about it um for dinner the night before his execution he was served a burrito rice and a salad and like we said earlier his last meal in the morning was steak and eggs breakfast um 
And then on January 24th, 1978, he was finally executed. And his final words were something along the lines of like, I'm sorry I caused so much trouble. Like, okay, <laughs> F you. Shut up. Um, he was executed by the electric electric chair. And people walked out and like waved their arms to signal to the crowds that he was dead. And the crowds were like, cheering so excited again they were setting off fireworks like it was a huge thing um and he was cremated and had his remains scattered through the cascade mountains which was a little controversial because some of his victims were there and like Uh. an unknown amount of women may still be there that we haven't been found so they were people were kind of upset about that but like it was one one of those things where like i guess legally you have to like follow their last wishes right which i i always think is weird like they're dead anyway (laughs) i don't don't want to honor somebody like i don't know give the remains to the family and have them do what they want don't advertise it because like that's just honoring somebody I don't know. It's so gross. Yeah. I I agree. I understand how it's controversial, though, because like you said, you have to honor someone's last wishes. Mm-hmm. Yep. But that is the end of Ted Bundy. Obviously, he still is one of the most notorious killers of all time, let alone in just America and People are still fascinated. I mean, we are, clearly. But his case is truly, like, crazy and different, especially the court proceedings of him defending himself. Like, that was never seen before, and I don't think it's been it's happened again since then that I know of. Right. I but, mean, it really failed for him. I mean, he really did not do a good job. Wasn't a very <laughs> good example of it was not <laughs> doing it right at all. You know, he's really a good, uh, like, what-not-to-do type person. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think that this is one of the only ones where it kind of goes throughout America. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the way from Washington State down to Florida. Yeah, that is literally across the country. Yeah, so I think that that's one of the first, probably the only other one I can think of that kind of goes through a bunch of different states is um, Israel Keese, right? Is that his name? The guy with oh, the bucket? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he goes all around the country, too, with his, like, yeah. little creepy buckets. Yes, yeah, that's true. But that was a, that's a lot later, too. So I guess this probably was one of the first that we know of like that. Yeah, that's true. But, oh, gosh, Ted Bundy. That's a big one. That's Yeah, we had to kick off season two with a big one, we thought. Mm-hmm. So... So with season two, we plan to do a little bit more. um, Obviously, we're still going to be doing true crime, but we're going to throw some ghost stories in there, too. Yeah. I'll hear some of those this year. We love supernatural. Spooky. Spooky ghost stories. Stuff. Halloween is like everywhere in Disney right now, so I feel like I'm already celebrating Halloween. They started August 9th here. Yeah. Oh, everywhere is like, I mean... Uh, Duncan's already got the pumpkin spice mm-hmm. and um, 
I, I'm like watching TikToks and it's like, oh, getting in the holiday season or the, yeah, getting in the, um, yeah, I don't know, dressing for the season. And it's like wearing black and purple. I'm like, what are you talking oh about? It's summer. I mean, where I'm up in Illinois and it's, it was 96 degrees yesterday. Yeah. It's by the way, hot. Yesterday it was 96 degrees. I, I was in a Meyer parking lot. Meyer's a store that we have up here. Mm-hmm. And um, I found, or I saw someone have their dog in their car. And it was <gasps> no. Yeah. The windows were cracked like maybe an inch, but that's not going to do anything. There was no. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh my God. So if I, I ever saw that, I'd literally hunt someone down and be like, um, excuse me, help this dog. Oh, I did. I did. So. First, I called uh, the customer service and I was on hold with them. So while I'm on hold, like no one had even picked up the phone yet. Mm -hmm. So while um, I'm still on hold, I went up to like one of those personal shoppers, you know, where they deliver it right out to the car. Yeah. And I was like, hey, there's there's a dog in a car over here. He goes, "Okay." I'm like, so what do you guys do about that? He's like um uh, uh I mean oh. he must have been some high school kid I don't know I just found the first Meyer uh, person I could find but he's like uh, I I don't know I'll have to ask my supervisor I'm like okay well do you want to know what car it was and he goes sure <laughs> so as he was walking away oh I literally I said out loud I was like he's not gonna do shit <laughs> like I made sure that he heard me say that because seriously sure and then he goes, okay, thanks. And like walks away. Like that guy probably didn't do anything. No. And then I He's also going to go inside and not say anything. Exactly. And then I have a, also <laughs> a cousin that works there. So I called her or texted her and I was like, hey, are you working today? And so then I notified anyway, by the time that like my cousin had gone and I also finished the phone call with customer service. <laughs> so for future reference, for anybody that ever finds a dog locked in a car, just call the police. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they ended up doing was they called the police and the police were already there by the time my cousin had um, gone up to the front counter. But that's, it's so cruel. That poor dog is probably like so hot. It's just so dumb. Like I get it. Okay. If you have to run in for a second, but then leave your, leave your car on. Yeah, I've done leave that your with, car on. I've done it with rooster where I've run in and I've never, I've never done like a full shopping trip. It's only if I have to get like one or two things mm-hmm. and I leave the car turned on. I mean, it was one with a key, but you know what? Like then, then don't bring your dog with. Yeah. Oh, that makes me so mad. Yeah. It, it is was- legal in Illinois to break a window for a dog and get it out. But I know. I, th- I think if the dog looks like they're in distress. Yeah. The dog was sitting there like, just looking at me like happy as a clam Aww. so he didn't I mean he was panting but at the same in the same note how do you know if a dog's in distress because tr- yeah I know like okay the dog is panting because they're hot mm-hmm. and then he he was panting a little bit and he laid down but it's not like he's gonna be like help me help <laughs> yeah you know? literally. like he's not mm-hmm. gonna do anything I get that's like one thing here I see a lot of um service dogs and I just, they look, sometimes they have like so much fur and they look so hot. Those poor dogs like walking around all day. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're having so much fun there. Thanks. I am. I love We're it. having fun here. Just trying to get within a 
make a normal life, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and your first kid is crazy. Well, here, um, I'll start advertising. So within the next month, um, and I will talk about it more because I don't even have a name picked out, but my husband and I are making a podcast of our own. Ooh. Yeah. And it's going to be all about, um, you know, just first time parents and the dumb mistakes we made and, you know, my different <laughs> reviews. A lot of it is like what they don't tell you about pregnancy or what they don't tell you about, um, giving birth or even mm-hmm. postpartum, what they don't tell you about that. Cause there's a lot of things in pregnancy, where I had never heard it before, you know, and unless you experience it yourself, even women that weren't, that have been pregnant before hadn't even heard some of these things that I was experiencing. Yeah. And, and but then you like learn as you're going on that there are a lot of people that just deal with this and it's just kind of a part of being pregnant or a part of postpartum that all women deal with, or most yeah. women deal with that nobody even talks about so I think it's good I think it's helpful and and kind of fun and funny Mm -hmm. that's kind of the spin I want to put on it I was gonna ask you like how far you had gotten with that that's exciting yeah no um just it's been crazy lately but we're gonna start it within the next month yay yeah oh my gosh can't wait all right well anyway that was Ted Bundy Yes. And I'm Casey. I'm Emily. And you just heard a sprinkle of sugar, a dash of murder, true crime podcast with an element of baking. I don't think I usually say that whole thing at the end. No, <laughs> that's okay. You know, we're getting back into the swing of things. All right. <laughs>